The Pinball Network is online. Launching. Silverball Chronicles. I miss Clippy. Clippy wouldn't have been oh, that. Oh God! Bad. You know, I, I, you know, I hate little characters like that. But in the case of of him, it was like, yeah, okay, a little, uh, yeah, a little paperclip <laughs> named Clippy. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm David Dennis, and this is Silverball Chronicles. With me this month is my co-host, Ron. I picked up a new game, Hallet. Ron, what's up, fella? This month? Does that denote, like, other months you're, you're going to have other co-hosts? How do I not know this? You are on thin ice, my friend. Oh, my. So I just want to make sure that you're aware that at any time you could be wiped out of this. Anytime I don't know something, I'm fired. Exactly, okay. exactly, exactly, exactly. You picked up a new game. Yes, I did. Do you care to share? It's it's not done by our our subject of today's episode, but it is a Williams game from the era that he worked there. Oh. And that would be Attack from Mars. Wow. An, an original, of course, because you know I couldn't possibly get a remake. I'm surprised that you didn't already have one that's sort of a top tier kind of bally williams and that's kind of your bag baby well it's been on my list for 15 years but it's just never presented itself that game seems to be right up my alley but anytime i've played it i've always been like i felt like i don't know it didn't it didn't get its claws in me medieval madness gets its claws in me not so much attack from mars and i don't know if it's because maybe i haven't had enough time on it or it doesn't have as much f- like in your face sort of flash as medieval madness but i know saying that will make some people freak out because they are die hard attack from mars well over medieval sounds like madness. you need way more lights in that game yeah maybe way brighter lights which brings us to today's subject Although he hasn't, good. he hasn't got to that point yet, though. We, uh, we, it's Twippy season, right? Where we didn't make it on the list this year, and I'm going to take, Aww. I'm going to take full uh, responsibility for the fact that both Silverball Chronicles and Slam Tilt didn't make it on the drop down list and the Twippies this year, because we we split the vote. Everybody who loves Ron either voted for one or the other, and that split the vote, costing either us or Slam Tilt the drop-down list this year, but, you know, that's how it goes when you are as uh, outstanding as Ron Hallett. So it's my fault. Yes. That's basically what you said. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so be careful. Be careful. But if you are out there, remember uh, TWIP is a sponsor of Silverball Chronicles. Uh, we're on the Pinball Promoters Database. Swing on over to This Week in Pinball and vote in the Twippies. Also happening at this time are the Pinball Industry Awards, the new award shows started by TPN, of which we're a member. Wait a minute, another award show? Do we need more award shows? Yes, we need uh, as many award shows as we can get, and we need more shows called The Pinball Show, if we can get as many of those as possible. <laughs> Other than that, uh, things are pretty good. So 
we're really excited about all of the happening in the in the industry. We had a good 2020, considering uh, you know the world uh, the way it was. And 2021, I think, is going to be pretty great. What I look forward of all the things that are coming, I think, is going to be pretty cool. You've got a lot of new games coming out. You've got you know a refreshed American pinball. Uh, it, it's going to be pretty exciting in 2021. I hope Godzilla's coming out. That's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah. So remember to check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Silverball Chronicles. That way you can engage with us, chit chat, and leave some comments and posts. Well, I have a question. I have a question. Do we have our own site? Yes. We just launched our own website. Amazing. It just popped in my head. Yeah. Silverballchronicles.com. Swing on over there. That's your sort of one-stop shop. Uh, we wanted to make sure that um, all of the uh, the banter and shenanigans that we're doing here doesn't disappear from the internet. And the best way to do that is to start one of these uh, web pages. And uh, it's been a while since I built a web page, but uh, I went looking for GeoCities, which doesn't exist anymore. So I had to use WordPress. So we built a little website there. It's nothing too fancy, no shenanigans, but uh, if you're looking to... Uh, engage with us there's a couple of bits and pieces there as always uh be sure to check out the this week in pinball promoters database that's where you can leave us a review you can also check out some of the other podcasts twitch streams and youtube channels all pinball oriented please swing by there leave us a five-star review if you leave us less than five stars you're dead to me hmm. it looks like we got some reviews yeah i've pulled a couple of them in here from a couple of different sources all right we got scott s says, maybe, just maybe, my favorite. A detailed, fun walk through the history of pinball. You get the benefits of Ron with none of the Bruceisms of that other podcast. Keep up the good work. Oh, wow. The Bruceisms, I think, are the draw. <laughs> that and your amazing special guests on Slam Tilt Podcast. Mm-hmm. Then we have Gonzo73 from Pinside says, Silverball Chronicles is just an amazing show. Thanks for doing such a well-researched, fun show. I could have listened for two more hours. Bring on the next episode. Ah, nobody's going to listen to a podcast over an hour. Yeah, we were thinking the same thing. We should hook him up with that other guy. Well, uh, we've added two, uh, two new shirt designs to our shirts over at silverballswag.com slash silverballchronicles. I had them right. switched this time. To put you first, yeah. In the in your renegotiated contract for 2021, we had to make sure that there were some changes in there. One of them was that your name had to come first on the next yeah. run of shirts. These shirts are a little more sort of classic shirts. They're they're less f- uh, fancy graphics. So go ahead and take a look at those over at SilverballSwag.com. Very nice. Try the Tri Blend because that is a quality shirt. Also, if you're a Canadian fan of the of the podcast here and uh, you don't want to worry about cross-border shipping, you don't want to worry about duty or any of that stuff, shoot us an email at silverballchronicles at gmail.com and I have some shirts that I printed locally that I can throw in the mail for you rather than through Silverball Swag. But if you're in the States, you're gonna want to go to Silverball Swag. That's the spot to go. The quality printing, quality shipping, really great so you have like canadian mail is it like a mountie deliver it to your house uh no it's a sled dog okay with an old lady from saskatchewan gotcha yeah marge um we do have a couple of cor- oh god here's our corrections yes but before we read them where can i send my corrections 
You can send any of your corrections to silverballchronicles at gmail.com, or you can bring them up on the website over at uh, facebook.com slash silverballchronicles. And here, of course, are the corrections from our previous episode. <laughs> from Bruce Nightingale from the Slam Tilt Podcast. Oh, never heard, never heard of Bruce Nightingale. He reminds Nightingale. us that Ripley's Believe It or Not has two magnets. Uh, he reminds us that SAM, as an abbreviation, has never been officially explained. Because I honestly don't think it stands for anything. And that's that's been done a lot through time. They put You put periods on things like it's supposed to mean something when it doesn't. I still think it's just Sam Stern is what it means. Uh, he says, Monopoly little badge was a stick-on. What does that mean? What's the Monopoly little badge? So there was a little badge on the special Monopoly edition. Oh, okay. That it was stick on. So my assumption is it's in the coin door, and if you didn't stick it on, it's that's why it wasn't underneath the translite. He also reminds us that NASCAR loops three times on the initial plunge. There. There. That's the world wanted to know that. Now, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And they were short this time. They weren't, you know, massive novels. Were they really corrections? I mean, Sam was just an explanation. Monopoly wasn't really a connection. I, I, Ripley's, I might have said it had magnets, so he had to you know, say it has two magnets. Anyway. What are we talking about today? Today's topic. Pinball code has become more complex and captivating over the years. It is a critical part of modern pinball. We'd be amiss if we didn't have a podcast about one of the founders of modern pinball code, Captain Complexity, Dwight Sullivan. Now, I know some people are probably upset that we did not call this Blinded by Dwight, but there is a trademark on that from Zach Many, and he wouldn't give us the rights. Even though we're on the same network. Okay, I, I see how it is. Dwight is one of pinball programming's most important figures. Throughout the 1990s, Dwight worked on some of the best-selling games of all time, adding a level of polish which had not been seen before. He brought out a new level of fun and uniqueness that continue to influence today's modern programmers. Dwight's fresh ideas and new levels of complexity reinvigorated pinball code when it needed it the most, and the machines that he worked on benefited. He is one of the fathers of modern pinball code by writing some of the greatest pinball moments, there's a cliche, and today's podcast is about Dwight Sullivan. So what, Ron, is pinball code? It's the stuff that tells the game what to do in its most basic form. Yeah, this switch has this many points, and you do these five switches, and it equals this. It's a whole massive mess of stuff. And it's Dwight's job to give that some guidance and some structure. So what was, like, when we talk about code... What was sort of like the early EM code like? EM code? Well, it didn't really have code. I I guess the relays and steppers and such that told the game what to do when certain things occurred on the playfield would be considered programming. I guess you could technically reprogram an EM by adding a relay, moving some wiring, etc., That's like the most basic of basic, right? When you think about, you know, you're hitting this target, you're scoring 500 points. You're hitting this target, you're scoring five points. You get it in the scoop. It counts down the bonus. Really, really rudimentary. But in its own right, it is, I guess, quote unquote, code. So when we moved into solid state, 
What was sort of that early solid state code? How did it change a little bit? Well, you didn't need relays and steppers. You just had a circuit board and you had actual programming, which I'm I'm thinking most of the early stuff was probably in like assembly, ones and zeros. And the, I guess at that point, it also got to sort of, you could start to get a little more complex with all of a sudden you hit these three things and you get a blinking light and then you get into like a Pavlov's dog sort of situation, right? It's getting a little more complex. Then we move into sort of the 80s. And then what happens to code? Well, you had an initial, in the 70s, you had just get the thing working with solid state technology, with, you know, circ, you know computer boards. Get it, just get the thing working. Then you get into the early 80s, and it's more like, okay, what can we do with this that we couldn't do with EMs? What cool stuff can we do with all this? Yeah, now we've learned it won't burn the building down. Now you get light shows, you get speech, you get more more complicated things happening because you can do it. And then unfortunately everything crashed in the around 83 or 82, 83 or so. So those kind of, um, those innovations. Yeah. It, it kind of regressed in that you went from games that talk. Now they didn't talk anymore. They had a bunch of multi balls. Now they either don't, or they've only got one. It wasn't until the mid eighties, you get around like high speed era that it starts to, take off again so then we get into the 90s code which is a little bit mo mostly what we're talking about today when it comes to dwight sullivan but what's like 90s code all of a sudden the major innovation there is you now have the dot matrix display or dmd so now you can show the player things you could never show them before you can do things you could never do before like like video modes uh, yeah super Oh, not really into video modes? Well, then we're also getting into if you shoot this shot a bunch of times, you get a special multi-ball. And if you shoot this scoop and that scoop, and then you shoot this target, you get a super jackpot, right? Like things are getting a lot more comp. You got to, you know, if you're thinking later on in the 90s, all of a sudden you've got like a ringmaster that comes up out of the bottom and a magnet on top. And it like it gets really, really complicated and convoluted in different pathways. How do you think 90s code is evolved to a point today. So if we think about sort of the last few games that were released, like Ninja Turtles by Dwight Sullivan or, or Monsters, Star Wars, or Game of Thrones, like how do you think his philosophies from the 90s have sort of kind of permeated through into today? I would say Dwight is a, he is a moments programmer. I know that gets used a lot, but Dwight has definitely been around about moments in his games, especially his, his later games. Uh, but you look at something like um, just a super jackpot on Terminator 2, and then he brings it to you have Game of Thrones. And it's, it's basically it's the same exact concept, the same kind of um, moment in that game. And he redoes it for you know the new modern age. He's also Ghostbusters has the super jackpot callouts. You play uh, Star Wars. It has moments like when you're about to blow up a Death Star. All the lights go out. Like one thing flashes. Like, gee, I think I'm supposed to hit that. He's definitely. I would call him like a, a moments programmer. There's like this extra level of sort of polish or story, right? It's it the code itself beyond the intellectual property story itself tells a story, which is pretty cool. And we're going to kind of go through how that has evolved through Dwight's early career. If you'd like to do a little bit of extra research or you want to hear Dwight talk about these things, you can check out uh, the old head-to-head -head pinball podcast by Ryan C. and Martin Robbins. 
episode 73 that's in our show notes we've got special with when lit with ken cromwell and bill webb episode three that's in the show notes there's the pinball players podcast the latest one also in the show notes where he's talking about ninja turtles and loser kid pinball podcast episode 37 also just want to say scott where where's my hat man where's my hat anywho Let's jump into the early life with pinball through a lot of these interviews. Dwight talks about that when he was younger, he always ended up playing Bally's playboy and a machine that comes to life a lot is Williams high speed by Steve Ritchie. That machine comes up all the time as an influence for people who come into pinball in the mid to late eighties. I, I agree. It was a big moment, right? You're telling a story, you're chasing away. It's it's more video gamey as opposed to, oh, I'm shooting the ball at the targets. Yay. Plus you're the bad guy. And you're the bad guy. It's got great art. You can learn more about high speed back in episode uh one, our pilot episode with Steve Ritchie. Awesome. But that machine influenced a lot of people. So Dwight's education, he went to DeVry University, which is an Illinois-based university with satellite campuses throughout the U.S. It tends to be technology-focused at DeVry University. And in fact, I had a few of my friends who are from Toronto that actually have gone to DeVry University. So basically, I'm friends with Dwight Sullivan. Well, where I live, we used to, used to be DeVry commercials all the time. I remember when I was a kid in the 90s, DeVry University, it was like, there's like the guy who like needs a job and he's all of a sudden he's, you know, working on a computer with his like, with his keyboard. And then all of a sudden he's wearing a tie and he's like, you know, a director at a corporation. Yeah. Thanks, DeVry. That's pretty much the same commercials we saw. Yeah. Living the dream at DeVry University. There's nothing too good for Dwight Sullivan. One thing that's particularly funny is a term that some people call Dwight speak. Have you heard of this term? I have not heard of this term. So Dwight speak is sort of the way that Dwight talks. And Dwight is one of the funnest and most charming people to hear on podcasts because he's genuine and he genuinely loves what he does so much that he gets so excited that it's difficult for him to talk about what's getting him so excited or he stumbles or he makes weird comments. He's just, he's so funny the way Dwight is. And I got a great quote here from Chuck Ernst that I found. Chuck says he, meaning Dwight, can't get the things out of his head. They're in his head, but he can't get that out. So you have to show him a bunch of options and he'll pick one, which is what he was asking for. Yeah. So when you're working with Dwight, you gotta, it's a very collaborative approach tons of fun here's a prime example of kind of the the world that is dwight sullivan and it's how he actually got a job in pinball and if this story is not quintessentially dwight sullivan i don't know what is during his time at devry university there was a job fair particularly important when you're kind of in college you're getting out of college You need that sort of first job. They have job fairs. You go to a hotel, you go to a a high school gym somewhere. There's all these companies that need a cog in the wheel and they are, you know, you're giving them your resume and they're chit chatting and you're trying to find a job that you think you might fit into. Well, this is of course a technology based one because you're going to DeVry. So Dwight says, my counselor at DeVry was hard at work getting me interviews and telling me about job fairs. She told me about an entry level job opening with Johnson Controls. She gave me the time and address of the hotel for the interview. I shaved and gathered some cool-looking resumes into my leather-bound notebook. 
This is where we get the ultimate follow-up. So Dwight says, when I arrived at the hotel, to my dismay, there were no Johnson Controls interviews. My counselor had given me the wrong date. There was a job fair at the hotel that night instead. I was all dressed up, so what could it hurt? I went to some of the rooms and started talking to people. Yes, so he shows up, wrong day. Of course, Dwight went on the wrong day. And he says... It was the counselor that gave him the wrong day. But I think if you ask Dwight's coworkers, they would probably say that maybe he went on the wrong day. You're already there. You shaved, right? You got your, your leather-bound book. You might as well just go in and do some random interviews, right? So Dwight says, one interviewer told me that the fair was not for entry-level jobs, but knew a man named Ed Sajaki, hopefully I said that right, who often called her looking for people. She asked if I would like to program games. My eyes lit up. It was hard to maintain some composure. She told me that Eddie graduated from DeVry, too, and I should call him. Yeah, so you need to pitch to get a job, right? You got to go to get this job. You know, you got to sell yourself, right? When you're in, Especially when you're in technology, you got to be personable. You got to be, it's kind of an odd industry, right? It tends to be sort of nerdy and, you know, you got to put 110% in there. So, of course, Dwight would call uh, Sajaki. Uh, Sajaki asked for a portfolio and then he come in for an interview. Uh, when Dwight hung up the phone, he didn't even know what a portfolio was. So what he did is he just gathered up what he could find. He gathered some logic diagrams and some schematics from school, some of the artwork that he had drawn on a program from his uh, original Mac. And of course, he had some source code for some real-time games that he wrote for his Commodore 64. So he sat down with Mark Panacho and Bill Futzenruder for an interview. You might recognize the name Bill Futzenruder from a lot of our other podcasts. He comes up from time to time as a programmer in pinball. He also worked at Old Stern, believe it or not. Yeah, Stern Electronics. So we're giving you a hint where he's ended up by accident. So Dwight said, they took me to a small room off the reception area and we sat at a round table. I opened my briefcase and to my horror, my leather bound folder with my cool looking resume was not there. I apologized to them and we started to go through all the other stuff I brought. Right. So here, here's where we tie this back into Chuck Ernst's quote, right? He's, he's, it's got to be pretty tough, right? Of course he forgot his resume is going to a job interview, right? So Dwight says, Mark then stood up and left. He went to get Larry DeMar. Larry came in the room and I briefly went through all the stuff I brought again. When I was done talking about all the eclectic things I had brought, Larry didn't really say anything. That does not sound very good. That doesn't sound like it's going well. Of course, Larry DeMar, as we know, uh, he was one of the first generation breakthrough programmers in the solid state era, right? So if you think Larry, you know, Larry DeMar is probably like the grandfather of, of, of modern solid state pinball code. And he doesn't say anything after you're talking about it. It's probably not going well. So Larry DeMar asked Dwight, what are your favorite games? And Dwight told him, Defender and High Speed. Not knowing at the time who Larry DeMar was. That is an awesome answer. That is an awesome answer. Seems like a tough interview, though, regardless of, of sort of sucking up to Larry DeMar. Well, wait, well unintentionally. The, the funny thing is, they, they still ask that question of interviews. I know people who work at Stern, and that's one of like, do you want any games, or what are your favorite games? They still ask that to this day. Good question. It's like in my in my job in the financial industry, they always ask if you've ever gone bankrupt, and then if you say yes, they don't give you a job. <laughs> so uh, Dwight would say, on my way home, I was convinced that I did not get the job. 
What kind of idiot leaves his resumes at home? Less than a week later, I called Ed. He said he was glad that I called and that he was about to call me. He told me that apparently I made quite the impression and they wanted to hire me. And that's how Dwight Sullivan got a job as a programmer at Williams. I don't feel like those stories happen nowadays. (laughs) Uh, I think they do. I think they still do. Of all of the sort of quote-unquote origin stories, that's one of my favorites. That one, Pat Lawler one that we've got coming up in a few episodes down the road here, that's a great origin story as well. Super funny. I know when it comes to the interviews, if if you have ideas, if you have game ideas, or, that's what they look for more than resumes or, you know, like what if you come in there with all these ideas, like, you know, I'm thinking you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, they take more notice. They, if they see that there's a bit of passion, if if there's a teachability, if there's if you understand sort of the basics of what they're talking about, they're able to see that, even though you might not be able to see that as the interviewee. Pretty cool. So when Dwight started at Williams, the first project he was put on was doing some display effects, alphanumeric display effects for mousing around. Oh. And I like to tell myself that he's the one who came up with the the cool match animation, but I have no proof of that. I just always tell myself, maybe that's the one thing Dwight did on this game. And if it is, it's the greatest thing ever. Yeah, the the moment. So if anyone knows, maybe even Dwight doesn't remember which you know which effect he did, but that's the first. That was his getting his feet wet before he really got to be put full time on a game. Yeah, you got to learn how the computer works. You know that they're using. The, yeah, what, yeah, whatever platform they're on. Yeah, you know you gotta you gotta figure that out. And then the first game he's on after that, which is a harbinger of things to come, Riverboat Gambler. Ooh, the legend. Do you know how many action buttons Riverboat Gambler has? <laughs> yeah. Four. Four buttons. This is this is this is what happens. This is what happens. At least there's not four nowadays. Not yet. Now this is an old timey gambling boat theme. It's from August of nineteen ninety. This is a, a system eleven C from Williams. Sells three thousand two hundred units. This was designed by Ward Pemberton. Of course, if you remember him from our Bally episode, he did Fathom. And of course, you just mentioned it, Mousing Around. This had art by Linda Deal and Pat McMahon. Sound and music by Paul Hirscht, who did Black Rose, Creature from the Black Ragoon, Bram Stoker's Dracula, that sort of 90s Bally William artist that you can think of. And of course, software by Dwight Sullivan. This is an interesting game and you had mentioned it before it has four count them four action buttons on the four apron. action buttons i think it used i think they use membrane switches there's like a little ribbon cable thing that goes all the way across i often wonder when they would do these games where you take a standard part like the lockdown bar and you do something like that to it how much that raises the uh the bill of materials yeah that's you you don't want to get messing with stuff like that right but you know, they did yeah, if you want to get moving, you know, some drop targets around or, you know, that's one thing. But when you start, like, adding extra buttons on the flipper cabinet or that's that's getting that's some serious changes there. And I think I haven't played a riverboat gambler. I have actually only played it maybe twice, which is unusual for me to say that. But I think I've only played it a couple times. The best part about this game is Probably the fact that it, you don't see it very often. 
Oh, <laughs> so mean. It's yeah, it's I mean, it's OK. The four buttons we should explain. The four buttons are basically you can pick colors. Yeah, it's can, like gambling. You can like in bet, you can hold. That's what the buttons are for. Yeah, bet, hold, pass. It's kind of cool. It's to be totally honest, I'm I'm being facetious. I mean, it's it's actually pretty cool. Um, it's really kind of neat the way it works. Um, of course, um, the the sort of the step brother to pinball has always been gambling, right? It's always been slot machines, and it's like that pseudo middle of the road kind of game, and themes like riverboat gambler really draw on the fact that they're trying to bring in that gambling esque theme without sort of hiding it. It's pretty transparent. It uh, of course was a sure bet winner. Oh, you're reading the flyer. Almost certainly you're reading the flyer. I don't think it was a sure bet winner. <laughs> 3,200 units. Eh, I mean, at the time, I guess that's probably 3, pretty good. 3,200 units today? Any company would take that. This is where we get into something called flipper codes. And what's particularly interesting about this game is that the flipper codes actually use those four buttons on the front. So when you start up a game, before you plunge, press and hold the red button and the black button. Then press the pass button three times the black button three times, the red button three times, the green button three times. Then the display on the backboard, the alphanumeric display will shimmer, whatever that means. And if you press the black and the red button at the same time, it says hello world. Wow, that's a lot of buttons to get to say hello world. Dwight, as you will see throughout today's podcast, loves to kind of play with those things, which is neat. There's lots of flipper codes that he does and little hidden little gems I don't know why he does that stuff, but I guess it's fun. And it's pretty cool now looking back at it uh, that we can bring some of those things to light in today's pod. But it, it's, I mean, it's kind of a neat game. It's like a, it's like a casino on a boat theme. It's got some really cool ramps, two sets of drop targets. How can you go wrong? It's got a diverter thing. It's the kind of quirky original game you probably wouldn't see being made now, unfortunately. Yeah, this was, I mean, nowadays, this would be quite the risk. This would be a risky type machine, and you wouldn't want to take that kind of risk nowadays. But back then, it was like, ah, go ahead, right? Give her. And, of course, before licensing, right, in a, in a, in a parallel universe, this would be Maverick, which, of course, would come up with Sega in the future, which is the Mel Gibson movie. And like it's before licensing, it's sort of Ward Pemberton kind of doing his thing and then bringing in Dwight and saying, Dwight, what can we do? And he's like, well, we can add buttons and we can gamble and pass. And it's kind of cool. It's it's a risky type machine, but it is very cool. It is very, very cool. The, speaking of risky, uh, Pat McMahon was on art and he could be a bit risque when it came to his art style. Isn't that right? There, there's a significant amount of skin. Let's just put it that way. On the internet pinball database, you can see some of the original sketches. And there's one specifically, which is the hand-drawn sort of first sketch. And it's very, uh, hmm. Uh, Dave Christensen would approve of the art. Yeah, there you go. Dave Christensen would approve. The, the, the female character is uh, scantily clad, let's call it. And the character in the background is also quite scantily clad. So then they go to the prototype 
and the prototype covers up a little bit and it's a little bit better. And then of course on the final product, it is significantly toned down and, uh, I would say much more appropriate. <laughs> mm-hmm. We, we sort of talked about Dwight being, um, captain complexity and you can see already, uh, within this game, the complexity is right out of the gate. If you open up the flyer and you look at the back of the flyer, there's like a diatribe of rules already there. Like before it was sort of like shoot the scoops and the drop downs. And then all of a sudden now in this flyer, it's like, yeah, there is a ton of text on the flyer. It's insane. Scoring 21 at blackjack collects points and chips progressively for high scoring payout. If the player doesn't bust, Consecutive winning streak loop shots give players the opportunity to play the slot machine and also begin two ball multi-ball action. It's like, wow, there's a lot going on here on this machine. Think that that was probably the draw that, wow, there's a, you could do a lot with this machine. It's not just shoot the drop targets and get a multi-ball. I think that can be safely said. That's the most anyone's talked about Riverboat Gambler. There you go. The definitive podcast on all things Riverboat Gambler is Silverball Chronicles. Be sure to go over to Silverball Swag dot com to pick up your shirt oh mark ritchie also did the music on this game that's interesting yeah it's got nothing else to do might as well just do a little bit of music because of course him like his brother steve a bit of a musician of course the next game has been talked about a lot usually not in a positive fashion oh no you you got to be positive can't be negative on this podcast oh bugs bunny's birthday ball so dwight was on a supporting role on Bugs Bunny birthday ball. He wasn't the lead programmer, but he was a support, uh, member led by Dan Lee, who was the lead. He did some minor things. He said on this, which were a little bit of code cleanup, a couple of light blinking bits, but he did do some work on uh, Bugs Bunny's birthday ball. So you can blame Dwight for that game. Next time you see him. Dwight says, when I arrived at Williams, the average sale of a particular title for us was about three K 5,000 of a unit was a good day. For many reasons, pinball popularity went through the roof in a few years. I happened to work on three of the highest-earning and best-selling pinball machines of that era. And in 1990, Steve Ritchie started designing and drawing out a playfield that would later become the Getaway High Speed 2. As we mentioned earlier, High Speed was the machine that really drew Dwight in to pinball. At an early stage in the development, Steve shelved what he had designed so far because he got the opportunity to do Terminator 2. And, of course, he took it. So Steve and some video game designers, including George Petro and others, went to California to meet with James Cameron, who, of course, is the movie director of Terminator 2. And, of course, they took some others with them, and they needed to learn about the movie, because you can't make a pinball machine without knowing about the movie. Now, Dwight didn't go because he was not on the getaway team and therefore not on the Terminator 2 team. And the other thing to explain is back then, the games would come out at the same time as the movie. So when they made the game, they would have advanced scripts and would know what was going to happen in the movie before it was released, which doesn't really happen anymore. Yeah. Could you imagine having the script to Avatar 2? Just having it? No. That's dangerous, man. So this brings us to the game of my childhood, the game that I want to have in my collection 
and I'm too cheap to actually buy. That's Terminator 2 Judgment Day. That's space, time travel, sci-fi, war theme. July of 91. It's a solid state machine. This is the WPC from Williams with the dot matrix display or DMD. It's a standard body machine. It sells 15,202 units. Music and sound by the legend Chris Graner. Software by Dwight Sullivan. And art by Doug Watson. Now, we've talked about how much I love T2. In uh, Steve Ritchie, The Mullet Years, if you want to go back into the archive and listen to those. But we're going to take a different perspective. We're going to take a look at it from Dwight's perspective today. And Dwight would say, I finished up Riverboat Gambler and went on vacation with my girlfriend. When I came back from vacation, I was told that I was going to be working with Steve on T2 and to not mess it up. That's I love how corporates like that, right? Corporate folk, they're always like, hey, we're going we're gonna to give you a big promotion. Don't mess it up. <laughs> like, oh, that's a lot of pressure. And this is, of course, because Steve had a falling out with his current programmer on the team, Mark Panacho. Steve has falling outs with many programmers, it seems. I don't know why. I don't know why. I knew very little of Steve at the time. Little did I know that I was about to grab the tail of a comet. That's a good way to describe that, eh? Dwight, you're such a wordsmith. So the DMD era, this is an exciting thing, okay? This is the this is the first machine with a DMD, although, of course... Checkpoint, I think, I had one before. Yeah, there was Checkpoint at Data East, as well as there was Gilligan's Island. But this is kind of the first... This is the one where you're like, whoa, this is, this is really what it's supposed to do. Yeah, Gilligan's Island was the first Williams game, released with a DMD. So Dwight would say Terminator 2 was to be the first game with a dot matrix display. This new innovation did what we had hoped it would do. It gave Pinball a shot in the arm in sales. New games with dot matrixes made all the old games look old when they sat next to them. The dot matrix also enabled us to do video modes. This was something more we could do that was different from the recent games. For a while, most pins had video modes. Some had even more than one. And some were good. And <laughs> so this brings us to the video mode. So we have some comments here. We have uh, Mike Wynn from our Facebook page says, I generally like video modes. I mean, you got the screen back there. Why not use it? I wish more newer Sterns had video modes, except for the bash the flippers as fast as you can ones. Video modes like those can die. Wow. <laughs> not a fan of Lethal Weapon 3. Uh, why? That's that's not bashing flippers as fast as you can. Isn't it the fighting one? Isn't well, the that fighting the ones, that's one of them, but it has the gun one. And how about uh, Black Rose? That has the uh, you escape from the shark. And that's super cool, bashing the button as fast as you can. I kind of like the video mode in Terminator 2, to be totally honest. Right? It's the, the robots are going through, and you're just using the buttons to go left and right. Yeah, it was so good, it was reused in Terminator 3. And in fact, it was so good, they made an entire video game around it called T2 The Video Game. Not really. <laughs> Actually, I lied. I made that up. But that was, you know, this was Terminator 2. Anything associated with Terminator 2 made a crap ton of money. Did it ever. The pinball machine, the video game, the um, there was a, the Guns N' Roses song that was in it. Anything associated with it was a success. And in, in, in fact, they're still trying to revive that magic. Every couple of years, they just try to destroy my one of my favorite game, movies of all time. Also, you're not up for Terminator 7, the rebirth or something like that. Oh, 
Okay, anywho. Dwight, Dwight says, one day near the very beginning of T2 development, George Petro stopped by me in the hall and told me he was concerned that T2 pinball can make his game T2 video look bad. I don't think he was being funny at the time. I thought this was very rude, but I didn't say anything. In the end, T2 Pinball outsold the video game and it out-earned T2 Video at most test locations. In fact, Terminator 2 Pinball sold over 15,000 games as one of the all-time top-selling pinball machines. This machine was everywhere. It was everywhere all the time, in all the places you could be. And always next to it was T2 Video. I would say that T2 Pinball was the game of my childhood that I remember. But all I remember, I was, I don't know, like eight. All I did at that time was like double flip and drain and there was nothing to it so i would gravitate to the video game of t2 and i played a lot of that because i could get more for my quarter it was awesome right the t2 video game it had the two guns that shook it had like a rocket on the side you you shot the terminators and then you worked your way through sort of from the battlefield to the factory to the time machine then you were in the future it was really 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 cool and you could see that there was a lot of competition between the two the other thing about terminator 2 it's got that moment which would be the super jackpot everyone remembers the super or or most people say the stupid jackpot because that's what it sounds like arnold says but uh, he does say super jackpot and that's the thing you're trying to get on that game every time. Yeah, great little story about the stupid jackpot on the Super Awesome Pinball Show, episode 23. The Getaway High Speed 2 was the next uh, hit in the hopper. And of course, the driving police car theme, February of 92. It is a WPC standard body sells 13,259 units, which of course, huge again. Sound and music, Dan Forden. Software by Dwight Sullivan. Art by Doug Watson, who does the Translite, and Mark Springer, who does the Playfield and Cabinet. And they brought Mark back from the, uh, he did the original High Speed. So there was some continuity with the Playfield. It's the same artist. You want the same look and feel, right? You want the callback to remind people of the awesome game that was High Speed. And from the tech standpoint, I believe this was the first Williams game to have the service rails underneath. So you could pull the playfield out. So you could work on that wonderful supercharger. Yes. Even though the thing really never has any issues. I, I own a getaway. I've never had an issue with that thing. It literally only has one moving part. So Dwight would say when T2 was done, Steve and I quickly went into the next game, which was the getaway high speed two. It went really fast because Steve already had a good head start. Early in the development of the getaway, we went to Steve's house. He owned a high speed and we wanted to review what the game was like. The funny thing is, we spent only a few minutes playing and talking about high speed. The rest of the evening we spent checking out Steve's new big screen home theater equipment. <laughs> That's the funny thing about Dwight, right? Is that, you know, you're, 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 inquiring about high speed and building those things. And what sticks out in his mind is, oh yeah, we, we, we totally were hanging out with Steve's like home theater. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's so funny the way he sort of talks about things and remembers things. And then Steve Ritchie would sell his copy of high speed to Dwight. Oh man. Could you imagine having Steve Ritchie's new inbox high speed? That's cool, man. And Dwight said he was thrilled because high speed was a game that got me into pinball and it was a jewel in my small collection. Lyman Sheets now owns Steve's high speed and Dwight has dibs on the machine. If Lyman dies, 
<laughs> I guess that's assuming that Lyman will never sell it. This is a great story. This is a wonderful story. One thing is that when I think we forget in pinball sort of you and I as quote unquote hobbyist media or, you know, just the regular, you know, everyday collector or the person who goes to tournaments or the person who goes to the pub and there's a machine that there's like this emotional attachment that people have with the projects that they work on. And when you look back at people like Steve Ritchie, you look back at Dwight Sullivan, those guys, they were, they were in some of the, just the biggest moments within this industry and within this hobby. So there's these fun, emotional, interesting stories. And here's a good one. Dwight says, Steve and I went to back to back trade shows with T2 and then with getaway. Both were in Las Vegas. While we were at the second show selling the getaway, Larry DeMar noticed that on one of the large Las Vegas Strip signs that faced the road, it said the following, Enjoy our new arcade featuring T2 Pinball. T2 Pinball filled their entire display. I think it was the Silver Dollar Casino. Larry DeMar drove me to see it, and I have a picture of it. We sold over 13,000 copies of the getaway at the trade show, almost sight unseen. Imagine the, the, the hard work and the passion and, and the fun and the arguments and all of that stuff bundled up into that T2 project. And it's blasted all over a casino sign on the Las Vegas Strip. And you're able to say that you have a piece of that. Isn't that amazing? Like, that story makes me feel, like, excited for some reason. I don't know. And it has one of the best Super Jackpot call-outs ever. Well, it's not even a call-out. Just the Super Jackpot itself. Oh, it's such a great game. It's it, it's so good Dwight reused it two or three times, but it's worth it. It's that good. If you want to sell your T2 for 25% less than market value, please send me an email, silverballchronicles at gmail.com. <laughs> has to be in Canada. You have to be able to deliver. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. So this brings us into the next massive uh, license after The Getaway. That's Star Trek The Next Generation, of course, space sci-fi Star Trek theme, November of 93. This is the DCS uh, Williams system in the back box. Prove sound. Yes. The wide body, 11,728 units. Music and sound by Dan Ford and software Dwight Sullivan. Art by Greg Freres. And I may be wrong. I, I believe that was the last Williams to be in the 10K club. That's a that's a that's a prestigious place to be because I I doubt there are very few games nowadays that are in the 10,000 club. I doubt there are any. Dwight says for a while the game was actually going to be under siege, based on the upcoming movie. Steve had ideas of putting two cannons on the right side of the playfield, and dress it up to look like the ha- half of the ship. The two cannons would look like cannons of the destroyer. The ship that's used in the setting of the movie. Yeah, do you remember Under Siege? I saw that in a theater. That's uh, Steven Seagal, but the real star of that is... um, The Cake Lady. No, no, oh God. No, not the Cake Lady. Um, Tommy Lee Jones. Oh. He was a bad guy in that one. He, it's his movie. That I remember that movie, and I, you know, I'm going to have to say, American Pinball, you should go after Under Siege. It's a good one. If you can get help from any of the actors steven seagal is usually not very cooperative with anything so it's uh i don't I, you know i think at the time that was quite that was actually quite the action kind of movie like that was a big deal that movie actually and as much as we joke and kid about it nowadays because uh, we've seen what's happened to steven seagal and all his other yeah. movies well it was one of the diehards yeah basically that's the that's the that's diehard on a boat yeah it's that sort of genre 
that 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 era, right? You got Arnold Schwarzenegger doing action movies. You've got uh, Jean Claude Van Damme doing action movies. You 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 still have Bruce Willis. For some reason, he's he's the only one of that generation that has survived. And and you had Steven Seagal. And this was that sort of '80s kind of violenty explosion interesting story but not very good characters kind of movie and it was it was kind of fun it's a fun kind of popcorn flick so it was 80s in the 90s i'm sorry in the 90s yeah (laughs) yeah so dwight would say then the opportunity came to do star trek the next generation steve and i were both huge fans of the show and we switched tracks from under siege fast you know dwight being a nerd of course he likes star trek like come on star trek was huge in this time you're able to again see the scripts you know, you're either they're going to locations, they're spending time on those locations, seeing where they're doing the movie and the sets and all that stuff. Well, Steve Ritchie, Roger Sharp, Greg Ferris and Dwight all went to Hollywood. They went to the Paramount Studios to talk about the licensing with the licensing department. Actually, the licensing folk took them on a tour of the Enterprise set and Dwight walked on the Enterprise D. And for somebody like Dwight, I bet you this is probably one of the greatest times of his entire life. And here is one of my favorite Dwight Sullivan quotes. Dwight says, I saw the holodeck and 10 forward. I was on the bridge. They had the chairs covered in plastic. You could walk right through the view screen. We saw them setting up the lighting for a scene. And on our way from there, Gates McFadden, who's Dr. Crusher, walked right past us on our way to that scene. She was very tall. After our tour of the Enterprise, we had lunch in the Paramount Commissary. This commissary was huge. Many other celebrity sightings were to be had. The coolest was Patrick Stewart. He sat at the table directly behind Steve. (laughs) And then he said, make it so. Oh, no, he didn't. Why is this one of my favorite quotes? Well, it's because throughout the tour, you get a glimpse of what's going on in Dwight Sullivan's head. So he says, I was on the bridge and the chairs were covered in plastic. Like that sticks out in his head so much that he has to, that he wrote this down in this interview or in this, in this blog post that I, that I pulled from. Then he also said, we got to see Gates McFadgen and she was very tall. And then we got to eat and the commissary was big. Like, it's so funny. Just what, like what goes on in his head. And this quote is so perfectly him. You know, it was uh, in our Steve Ritchie episode, uh, the mullet years, when we talked about Star Trek, the uh, negotiations with Paramount were very difficult. And of course, Dwight would say they wanted to make it clear that the Enterprise would never fire first and never before some negotiating. There's a uh, hidden brick game. Have you seen the hidden brick game? Yeah, it's Breakout. I have seen Breakout. No, Breakout is trademarked. This is a brick-like game. Okay, it's Breakout. So you got to do this with a flipper code, right? Yeah. And we were talking about flipper codes with Rivervote Gambler. I'm trying to remember. I just, without reading the notes, you put a code in, and then when you get to the Rikers poker or something, you you have to hold a button down and hit a trigger or something. Yeah, there's a whole, I got, I'll, I'll break it out for you here. So, oh, okay. when it comes, when it comes to complexity and, and silliness, Dwight just goes nuts for some reason. So most of the time you'd be like, oh, you want to have a secret little mode, you put in a flipper code and that's kind of it. Well, no, not, not with Dwight. So the way it starts and I, and I, and I've, and I've got this, uh, it's in, in the show notes here. So you put in the code at the beginning and then the DMD will flicker. Then you have to play the game and get to Riker's poker night, which is a video mode. And instead of getting into Riker's poker night, it goes to the brick breaker game instead. So what's Riker's poker night? 
just to sort of add some context to that. It's a video mode where you play cards and you try to win the hands. Yeah, so it's like a hidden video mode. Riker's Poker Night is not like the regular mode, right? It itself is a hidden mode. Isn't that isn't that right? It's not. It's in the settings of the game. You can either turn it off or on. So by default, it's always off. You go to the tunnel. Isn't that right? Isn't that the default one? It's an actual setting in this offer. Is this like hidden video mode or something? Yes or no or something like that. I always had it off on mine because of tournaments and stuff. So I, I honestly forget. Yeah. So to recap, you put the code in, you have to play the game and get to the video mode. You have to play the video mode, then you hold the plunger. You pull the trigger. You pull the trigger. There's no plunger. We'll get another correction. And then it says, you know, points or or game, and you choose points. And instead of giving you the points, it goes into the Brick Breaker game. And we've completely lost everybody. Nobody really understands what we just said. And ladies and gentlemen, Dwight Sullivan. Another really fun story is the Star Trek The Next Generation door. Have you heard this story? No. What, what about the Star Trek door? So Bill Grupp, who um, he worked on Congo with John Trudeau and that team, on his door at Williams, he's one of the programmers, at his door, he took one of the decals from the Congo back box and he stuck it very nicely in the center of his door, which, I mean, you know, Congo, not a good movie, but that side art, it's kind of cool. Dwight knew that he had a whole bunch of Star Trek The Next Generation decals, and he decided to one-up Bill. So to do this, Dwight covered his entire door with Patrick Stewart's face, and this is how the Star Trek door was created. So if you went to Dwight Sullivan's door at Bally Williams, it was top to bottom, left to right, completely filled with Patrick Stewart's side art from Star Trek The Next Generation. More useless info. I think, if I remember, is Star Trek The Next Gen, the, the cabinet is silkscreen, but the back box is a decal. But I think the protos, it was it was also silkscreen, the back box, and then they switched it to a decal. Hence the all the decals available. Well, Ron, it's a new year. We have a new podcast sponsor. It's time to put on my professional voice. If 2020 has shown us anything, it's that sound financial advice should be a key part of your insurance and investment plan. Did you know that individuals who received financial advice for 10 years have two times the financial assets than unadvised individuals? If you're looking for a more human dimension to your financial advice, Dennis Financial Inc. has you covered with advisors licensed in most Canadian provinces. When it comes to retirement planning, insurance for family and income replacement, mortgage coverage, or key person business protection, you can count on Dennis Financial Inc. to help you customize a risk management solution. Contact me at david at dennisfinancial.net for a free rate quote and a copy of our Value of Advice ebook, or check out dennisfinancial.ca. Insurance solutions provided by Dennis Financial Inc. Now, back to the podcast. Uh, then Dwight would work with Pat Lawler on the Red and Ted Roadshow. We're going to cover that under the Pat Lawler episode because that's a whole thing. So I don't want to get into that today, but he worked on that project. And then we get into something really, really original. And that is Who Done It. I love Who Done It. People either love it or they hate it. Yeah, they just don't understand it. 
they don't understand the brilliance that is who done it. So this is a murder mystery kind of game. It's September of 1995. It's a WPC-S standard body, so they're back to the standard body layouts. 2416 units, so not very many. Ouch. And of course, this is sort of like after that first initial boom in the 90s, it's kind of on its way down again, the industry. Music and sound by uh, Paul uh, Heist. Heist. Heish. Sounds good. Heish. Software by Dwight Sullivan and art by Linda Deal and Paul Barker. Yeah, it's funny. We're going through all these games. I'm thinking, with the exception of Riverboat Gambler, I've owned a Terminator 2. I own a Getaway. I've owned a Star Trek Next Generation, and I own a whodunit. I guess I'm a Dwight guy. Sounds like it. You're like your moments. I love moments. You're like, you're like stop and start. That's not true. <laughs> well, we got a comment here from Pinside. Why don't you read the? It's from Law. Oh, the Law. The Law. I guess that's his name. So wait a minute. So he's the Law. So is he? Um, what's his face? Isn't um, Judge Dredd the Law? Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's right. I'm the Law. <laughs> Stallone is the law. Okay. Why don't you read what the law has to say? Who done it is a fantastic idea, but in reality, it's a bit of a mess. If you don't lock in a high jackpot value during multiball, it's a waste. It has a bunch of seemingly role-playing game elements, which sounds great, but it's just jackpots all day, and you need a ton of them. <sighs> Tom MacArthur, who is uh, actually the uh, guru here in my province, who does all of the IFPA tournaments, he's the IFPA provincial director, he says on Facebook that Whodunit is perhaps his least favorite pinball machine of all time. Definitely in the bottom five. And then Billy YJ, who's a frequenter of the pinball hobby, replied to that, and said, I was just about to type that. <laughs> Tom and Billy are dead to me. <laughs> just, just, you know, there's more to the game. And, and he didn't even, that, that about getting the jackpots than the regular multiball, that's not even how you get the huge scores in the game. And I'm not talking about using the bug. That's another thing. Dwight Sullivan games, at least in the tournament crowd, are kind of known for being the bug games that you end up not using. Would you say it's a bug or it's an exploit? Uh, they're bugs. Terminator 2 has bugs where you just, I, I think it's like it doesn't count the super jackpot. Terminator uh, Getaway has bugs, so they don't typically use it. Um, a whodunit has the, the really bad bug where the, the, the motorized three bank will just stay down and you can just hit the ramp into infinity forever and just play the game for hours on end so there's 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 a, sometimes there's a price to complexity i guess is is the uh yeah well said well said but on whodunit honestly the the main strategy i use on whodunit just to do a quick because i like whodunit so much basically you want to get the revolver because it makes the pop bumpers increase the value of the jackpot into infinity land i don't know if there's a cap get into the uh, basement multi-ball get some you know trap up your multiple balls and just hit the left orbit, get into the pops, get the jackpots to ridiculous levels, and then start collecting. And you will blow up the game in a huge way. Super fun. The design of this game, this is co-designed by Dwight and Barry Ausler. So that's interesting. So Dwight is actually kind of, he has a hand in designing this machine. And this looks like Dwight is sort of branching out a little bit here and partnering with Barry Ausler for the design and the software. 
So Dwight would say, by 1995, with the help of many talented people, I helped design some very successful games. While up to this point, I had a great deal of input into those games, I wanted more control over the design of the game. Now, Barry Ausler... For example, on Star Trek The Next Generation, for those of you who hate the subway system, that was actually Dwight's idea. Yeah, that's all on Dwight. He, he wanted the balls, you know, have the balls come, just, just be staged and ready to come out at various places on the play field. Very cool. It's one thing that's interesting, and we'll get into this. I've got a Barry Ausler episode all ready to go. Barry Ausler is always like the guy that would work with somebody to finalize their design and, and really button it up and tighten it up. And that I think is why he was paired with Dwight on this, because you got somebody like Barry who was always ended up dealing with somebody like Python Angelo and was able to sort of corral a game out of, out of that. Or somebody would bring a design and they'd be like, Barry, can you like, can you, can you put a bow on this and spit shine it a little bit? And then all of a sudden he would make Barracora. He would always sort of get everything nice and tight and together. And I think that's why he was paired with Dwight in this, in this case. And Dwight says, through attrition of one sort or another, Barry Ausler, a game designer of almost three decades, was left with a short design team. He often worked in later years with Mark Ritchie, Bill Futzenruder, or Python Angelo. I approached my bosses and Barry and suggested that I start co-designing games with him. They all agreed that that made sense. And the reason a lot of those guys weren't there anymore is because they all went to Capcom. Yeah, that's that's sort of the the you know that that group of individuals they all sort of pulled that shoot. That's a whole episode in itself. They had a they got a bunch of people from Williams to go over to Capcom. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. Dwight, he said, I told Barry about my idea that I had been cooking. It was an idea to do a game about a murder mystery. He liked it and showed me a playfield that he had drawn. And we started talking about how we could marry this playfield idea to my murder mystery game. Since it was my idea to do all of the theme, since it was my idea to do the theme, we agreed that the buck would stop with me on the theme related stuff and Barry would handle everything else. There you go. The, the, the playfield master can do his, his thing and just make the shots nice and I'm going to do my thing, which is bring in the theme, you know, uh, you know, bring in the code, all of that stuff, and be sort of the lead, which is very cool. And can I just say the call-outs and music are also awesome on Whodunit? I hate to keep, uh, you know, saying how awesome Whodunit is, but... Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, Trevor, he rebuilt a Whodunit, and he's like, I'm, I'm shocked at how much I enjoy this game. And he downsized... His home, he, 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 he didn't have as, as much room. This was one of the machines that he moved on, and he said it was difficult for him to do that. So it's like a casino theme, right? Eh, it's, it's, it's Clue with a casino. Barry and Dwight still have a very good relationship. They played uh, poker all the time. There was a sort of, there's like a, a, a Williams poker group back in the 90s. Card games and things like that, I guess, flow very well. Dwight would say, at this point in history, gambling machines in general were being blamed for the decline in coin-op and pinball. It was decided that our pinball machines needed to have more gambling themes. This changed the theme of our game a little bit. We wrote into the story that it took place in a casino, Tony's Palace. We also then added a slot machine toy to the game. So we'll get into this slot machine toy in a second, but there's also the phone toy. The phone toy is literally, it's its just a phone that flashes, has a flasher in it, and it just flashes. It's not really a toy. It's literally just a, it's just a static 
piece of plastic. That's that's why I think toy is in exclamation marks because it's not really a toy. Ah, so I think it was Barry, Dwight would say, that came up with the phone, quote unquote, toy. I thought of how to use it, and it was one of my favorite features in the pinball. When the phone rings, it's clear what's going on. You have to answer it. And the call-outs tell you that, too. Will someone answer the phone? The other thing is the slot machine in the game, right? Under the play field. I love the slot machine. If it works, consider yourself lucky if it works. If it does work, don't screw with it. It's literally a shot. It's a slot machine. And it's coordinated with the play field. And when you hit certain shots, it's like you pull the lever on the slot machine. So the little things, little, little barrels underneath spin and you want to line them up. And it's physical. It's phys- It's not a digital. It's a physical slot machine. That seems dangerous to work on. Uh, I, I would, if, let's put it this way. Mine was totally rebuilt by the previous owner. So when I shopped it out, I removed the entire slot machine and put it aside and never touched it. <laughs> And you may want to put LEDs in it, too, because it can get hot in there with the lights. That's one place yeah. I would recommend LEDing. The promo poster uh, flyer for this, super, super fun. Because it's done like it's like, a again, a murder mystery clue-esque thing. But it's almost like a, a, a newspaper or an article piece with the Bally Inquisitor of who done it. Yeah. And then it sort of outlines the butler and Victoria and Bruno and Trixie, of course, and, and Tony. And for some reason, why are they all Italian? That's, that's not right. One is British. Victor- Victoria has a British accent. Yeah, but I, do- I, bet- I bet she wasn't the one that did it, though. They all did it at one point. Oh. Yeah. Someone new does it every, every time. Every, oh every case. Not only that, there's an entire backstory that was written for this. That's, I, I don't know where that is somewhere, but I mean, more than just a flyer. There's like a whole backstory about this game. The, the story, if you will. Yeah, there's like you take the road up the railway into the subway with a diverter. There's the 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 thing in the middle called Elevator Madness, which is like a, 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 a 360 kind of ramp where it'll go to three different directions when you're shooting in the middle. The phone up the left side, pop bumpers in the middle. There's a lot going on in this machine, and it's I think it's a lot of fun. I would love to play this game just because it's so different and unusual, and we'll get into that in a minute. One thing that's also super, super cool is that you can choose between expert and novice. Ooh, new feature. <gasps> new feature. And this brings me to an interesting point here in uh, pinball in general, which is patents in pinball. And we haven't talked about this in any of our other previous um, you know, engagements, but Patents are a big thing in pinball, especially in something that's so physical and interesting. Choosing expert or novice actually was a patent that was filed by Dwight Sullivan and Ken Fidesna on behalf of Williams Electronics Game Incorporated. Now, that was filed in December of 1995, and it was actually granted in January of 1998. Uh, I've pulled that patent information, and it says a pinball game is provided with a control system which enables a game player to choose between a novice mode of play and a normal mode of play. In novice mode, the game play proceeds in a predetermined time, regardless of the number of game balls played and selected game features, such as a tilt sensor, may be disabled. Game bonuses and free play games may be made unavailable in novice mode to encourage experienced players to play the normal mode. And interestingly enough... This was used, well, kind of used again on Game of Thrones. 
there was like a novice mode in that also. And I believe it was um it was used in Goldeneye at Sega where you could choose between sort of a predetermined amount of times so yeah. you get a little extra ball saver than you did the other way around. Also a fun way to cheat in tournaments. <laughs> so you can review some of Dwight's other patents. He's 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 in quite a few of the different patents and uh, I'll include a link to that. And it's funny because he's actually determined to be a inventor, which is kind of fun. It was Junkyard, which was the next game up for Dwight Sullivan and Barry Ausler. This time, Barry would take the lead, followed by Dwight. And of course, shortly into development, Barry was let go by Williams. Along with a bunch of other people. Yeah, so there's a whole really cool story about Junkyard and the backstory and the interesting bits and pieces. We'll get into that in our Barry Ausler episode. This is that time again, you know, we're moving into like 96, 97, 98, where we're on that roller coaster ride down, down the bottom. And Williams is cost cutting and they, they cut a bunch of their designers. They, it wasn't just Barry Ausler who had been there for 25 years. Um, Dennis Nordman, they cut him. By by this by this point, I believe they just had it was Papa Duke, George Gomez, like Brian Eddy. I'm trying to think who else. Steve Ritchie had moved on to, to video games, so yeah, he had a management position, and then he moved on to the video games, doing California Speed games like that. This is where they're they're trying to watch, you know, their costs, right? Like the other thing is right when you look at these new individuals, you know, Papa Duke, Gomez, uh, uh, Dwight Sullivan, these kind of they're working a lot cheaper than sort of the old establishment, right? So. <laughs> They're probably sticking around. It's kind of like they were like the millennials of their generation. They, well, yeah, the designers were the newer designer. I mean, Brian Eddy had been there as a programmer for years, but yeah. So the next game, this is Champion Pub. It's like a whole, it's a whole thing. So it's like a boxer, fighter, novelty sports thing. Yeah. It's a WPC 95. It's from... Uh, April of 1998, it is a uh, solid state, of course. It sells 1,369 units. Uh, the concept is is done by Pete Prowski, uh, art by Paul Barker, Linda Deal, got sound and music by Rich Carl, and software by Dwight Sullivan. And we can see on this game, who are these people? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we'll, we'll, we'll get, you know, a deeper dive into these folks some other time when we bump into them. But this is very much the symptom of the time at Williams where you're like, Oh my God, it's 1998. And there's these people that we've never heard of that are making games. One of the greatest quotes of all time is from Zach many of the pinball show and straight down the middle of pinball show. He called this a novelty game in which Dwight Sullivan's brain exploded. Can you explain why some people call this a novelty game? Well, it has it has the boxer that you can actually hit, and it has little mini ramps in front of him so you can hit him in the face, which is cool. It has a it has a lot of cool. It has a super cool jump rope toy, so you can just jump rope. You hit the flipper buttons and jump up as the as the rope goes around. It has um, a speed bag toy there's a lot of toys but it's it's very repetitive though you you basically train and then you fight and then you train and then you fight and each boxer is a different character um at least one of them is not allowed anymore he's censored out of most um versions of it 
So, like, it's it's kind of unique and different. And Mike M. from Facebook would say, as shallow as Champion Pub is, I love the game. Definitely a little too gimmicky at times with the training mechs, but the callouts and music are just incredible. Bally Williams really went out of their way to try something different. Could this be the greatest bash toy of all time? Speaking, of course, of the uh, the boxer in the middle. So the idea is that you... You shoot up to the boxer who's turned around and you shoot up the ramps and you hit the, the bag, right? So it's like you're, you're training to fight. So you're hitting the speed bag. Then the, then the guy turns around and then you fight him, right? It's kind of cool. It is cool. It's one of the most mispronounced game names ever. Most people call it like championship pub. It's like, no, it's the champion pub. No one ever says the name of the game, right? The jackpot callouts are hilarious because it just doesn't have jackpots. It has double, triple, quintuple sextuple uh cow of uh there, there's like at least 10 different jackpot callouts of different terms yeah it's got the the dwight sullivan complexity and it's one of the the two games that williams did at the end where they used real back glasses for whatever reason instead of a translate this and no good gophers have real back glasses for whatever reason it's got this mech a jump rope mech in the back left of the game so you kind of go up and the ball gets diverted in there and it sits like a plunger or something right yeah it's that's a magnet it gets caught right on the magnet and it pulses it pulses the magnet as the little rope spins which is like a little metal thing and you you are doing the, the magnet pulsing so every time the rope comes around, you want to hit the button, the flipper button, so he, so the ball goes up in the air, just like you're jumping rope. And then it's got a speed bag mech in the in the in the right back yep. corner. So think of Congo, but way smaller, and you hit a bag. So you get the ball up there, and it's got little hands, and the left and right hand hits the ball into the bag. Is that right? Yep. And the jump rope one is super cool because the. F- it gets faster and faster, and the game will do callouts. It'll just start going. It, it starts counting. Three, four, five, six, seven. It gets more excited the more times you can jump. So, it, like, I mean, in in a nutshell, it's kind of a neat kind of concept, fun game. But like you said, it gets kind of... It gets repetitive. It's the ultimate gimmick game that gets repetitive. Okay. But you would say it's gimmick in comparison to most gimmicks. Pretty darn good. All their gimmicks, the toys are awesome. Yeah. If you don't want awesome, you know stern code this is what you get you get a bunch of necks and nothing yeah it's cool i haven't played a champion pub i have played it in the pinball arcade the digital version which isn't real pinball um and it's kind of fun there is some pretty cool stuff here on the back glass so if you if you go to the uh if you go to the internet pinball database you go to the champion pub uh page you can look at the pictures and you can bring up a picture of the back glass and then you can look at it and it's super fun because everybody in there is somebody at Williams. And this is the kind of stuff that I love with pinball is all of this silly stuff. And I'll go through a couple of the names that are on there. So there's a man in a, with a, with a goatee and a bowler hat second to the left. That's Dwight Sullivan. He's watching the, 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 the fight here, the old timey fight. There's a person with eyeglasses next to him that is a person, but I couldn't find out who that is. That's somebody from there. There's a shorter man in suspenders and a cap who's in front of Dwight. That person is Pete Pirowski. 
the blonde lady with her arm raised, that's the, the, the person next to, uh, the person in the glasses with her arm raised. That's Linda deal who did the art on the game. And don't forget there's Steve Kordick right in the front. That's what I always see. Yeah. Steve Kordick is the, is the older gentleman with the money in his hand, turning around and looking at the player. Yep. That's Steve Kordick. And of course the, the legend that is Steve Kordick. We've got Brad Cornell who is an individual that worked there and he's right above the blonde boxer's arm on the right side. Uh, Rich Carl, who was the sound engineer. He's the person with the black hair who's kind of profile next to the server. It's kind of fun that they had some of this stuff. The funniest part is that there is a fly on the bar next to the individual taking the photo on the left side that bar fly is said to be Jim Patla. There you go. Now you know. So this brings us into the dark days at Williams, right? We were already there at that point for the last few years. Yeah, yeah. Once you get to Champion Pub, it's kind of that's kind of it, right? <laughs> we were there a few years before. For years, about every three months, there would be layoffs at Williams. You know, usually when you're coming up on the quarter, the suits and the accountants are looking at the numbers and they're saying, all right, what are we doing here? And of course, every three months there were layoffs. And of course, the whole industry started to decline in 94, 95. You know, that would be pretty stressful. I had friends that worked in uh, BlackBerry in Kitchener, Waterloo here in Canada, and they went through the same thing for a three year period where that sort of post iPhone you know, collapse of BlackBerry, who was like a, a, a crown jewel in Canadian technology. And every three months there'd be rounds of cuts and the stress on my friend's face was not something that I, that I envied. And Dwight says the uh, layoffs were like vomiting. It's so gut-wrenchingly painful as it's happening, but afterwards you feel better. You think that sucked, but maybe it's over now. Maybe things will get better from here. You force yourself to have faith in the leadership of the company. That's what kind of brings us into that Pinball 2000 time. And Dwight had some work on Pinball 2000, but this was really more or less the brainchild of the design team there, which was was Pat Lawler and George Gomez, and then of the peripheral of the design teams working off of the platform. But Dwight says, while I had very little to do with Pinball 2000 design or its OS, I worked harder on Revenge from Mars than any other game previous. Revenge from Mars sold well, two to three times more than any recent game. I've never played Revenge from Mars. I've played, I've, I've played Star Wars, which is Star Wars uh, Episode One, which is just god-awful. Uh, Revenge from Mars, you shoot up the middle. Yeah, so it's it's... Okay, so it's still not, it's not that great either. The, uh, play, eh, it's funner to shoot, I think. That's an opinion. At Pinball Expo 99, Pinball 2000 had been released. It was going fairly well for the most part. I think probably better than people had expected. It was October 21st through the 24th in Chicago. And what is Pinball Expo, for those who don't know? It is the yearly big pinball show. For years, it was the main pinball show, because it's actually in Chicago. So... You are in the heart of pinball. They've been having it every year since 1985. Last year, they had a virtual pinball expo. 
this year, hopefully we'll be able to get back to the sort of the, the, in the fall here, we'll be able to get back to things that are normal, but pinball expo has really had a massive resurgence. A lot of that has to do with, uh, with, with, um, the investment of the team. You can check them out at pinballexpo.net. bring up some of their information of all of the individuals that are involved in pinball expo, but it's because of their investment and their growth. It's really grown and become something very, very cool. Um, but back then, it was a sad time around 99, right? Because it was about to be a, a very sad time. It, it seems like whenever some major thing happens in pinball, it's like right after Expo. And 19, it, it even more like in 2008, right after that Expo, Stern fired a bunch of people. Well, 1999 was the big one. Pinball, Pinball Expo in 99, that was held on a weekend, uh, October the 21st through the 24th. And um, that's when Dwight would say, when I arrived to work on October the 25th, the Monday following Expo, I learned that Williams laid off the entire pinball department. This was over 400 people, including 45 engineers. I was devastated. Yeah. And at that Expo, which was right before, they had a whole presentation on Pinball 2000 and George Gomez did. So it's like nobody, I think there were, there were inklings that something was going to happen. Gomez kind of knew, but it was the next, that next day, right after Expo. You can actually see the presentation on Pinball Expo by George Gomez on YouTube. Yep. So you remember that Star Trek door, right? We were talking about the one where he put a uh, Picard's face all over it. Exactly. So Dwight would say, many of us were still gathering and boxing up our stuff. Ken Fidesna in passing, and I'm sure half jokingly said, Dwight, I'm surprised that you didn't take your door with you. Well, I took that to mean I had permission. So I told the story to Jim Patla, who also agreed it must mean that I had permission. And Jim gave me a property pass so I could go get the door out of the building. So Dwight Sullivan went back to his office, took the door off the hinges, his Star Trek door, and took it home. This door is still in Dwight's basement today. Got a picture of that door in the show notes if you want to see it. Actually, yeah, let's see the door. There's the high speed that he sold. Yeah, there's, so in the background, you can see his games. There's his whodunit. He's got all his games, yeah. Super cool. So that's in the show notes. It's kind of weird, but cool, I guess. Uh, also, by the way, which I think is pretty funny, uh, in this picture, you can see Dwight's basement. And through 2020, Dwight did a lot of uh, basement sort of Zoom or Skype calls on reveals of video games or uh, reveals of pinball machines like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I don't think he's finished his basement. I think I, I think he still has an unfinished basement down there with the uh, same look. So if you know if Dwight has finished his basement since this picture was taken, send us an email at silverballchronicles at gmail.com. I know my basement isn't finished. Are you going to look down on me for my unfinished basement? <laughs> the thing that really sucked is after they fired everyone, they made everyone interview if they wanted to stay at Williams. And Midway, which was their video game department. God, that's horrible, isn't that's, it? That's pretty rude. So the staff, if you wanted to stay at Midway, like you said you had to do an interview. And Dwight wasn't sure if he wanted to make games anymore, right? At that point, you're you're pretty you know defeated. Every three months, you feel like you're going to just be slaughtered. And then all of a sudden, one day you come in and they let us all go. And they didn't tell us. And we went to Expo and pitched the product and seemed like a bunch of idiots. And... You know, especially for William's sister company, right? Like, do you really want to still work for the people that just freaking pulled the rug out from underneath you? 
So headhunters, they would start calling and get a couple of interviews here or there for Dwight. And um, several of the teams are all competing for the same positions, right? So you've got all those, all those like 450 people. And let's assume, you know, most of the design teams are all sort of looking for the same jobs at basically Sega Stern or, you know, some of the other novelty games at the time. So several of the teams actually heard of a fellow, uh, fairly well-known, Gene Cunningham, who was planning to start his new pinball company from the ashes of Williams. And and who was Gene Cunningham? He's the guy that bought all the rights to Williams. Yeah, he bought all the, he bought the, he bought, he was, he bought the scraps. He was, he was the vulture. He had warehouses full of all their parts, diagrams, pictures, all the CADs, everything everything he was there's there's a whole whole episode behind the end of williams i mean you had uh, roger sharp try to get a group together to buy the rights uh you had um with their german distributor who i can never remember their name it's like a one-word name there was talks about them maybe buying hickelgruber yeah you know, no buying well you know buying the, the williams you know pinball division so there, there was a there's a whole thing there that could be talked about that's an episode in itself. Yeah, Dwight would say for a short while, this prospect seemed very interesting and yet scary. Uh, so through a good friend who is uh, Cameron Silver, Dwight learned uh, that Lonnie Ropp, who was working at Stern, was looking for individuals to do some programming. So, of course, there's this huge influx of talent looking for jobs, and Stern really can have the pick of, of the best of the best, right? If they could pick from anybody there, they could pick the only ones that they really wanted. So Dwight called Lonnie and he interviewed over the phone and he had a lot to say and a lot to talk about. Lonnie asked Dwight to come in for an interview for a formal interview the following week. So after that phone interview on Sunday, Dwight says he drove down to meet with Gene, Gene Cunningham. On the way back, I was torn about how I felt. It seemed too good with lots of unanswered questions. On Monday, I put on my one suit and gathered my letters of recommendations from Larry DeMar and Ted Estes. And I went in for an interview with Lonnie and Gary Stern. It went really well. I was confident that they would make me an offer. The Gene Cunningham plan turned south. I think I dodged a bullet there. He did. In the end, my only real choice was to work for Midway and learn how to do video games or work for Stern doing what I've been doing for 10 years. So Dwight began working for Stern Pinball at the end of November 1999. So during this sort of Gene Cunningham starting up his company thing, you know, Pat Lawler Designs had conversations with Gene Cunningham. Um, I believe in the car ride that Sunday uh, with Dwight was also Keith Johnson, who, of course, would be a programmer at Sturm later on as well. And, you know, there was there was a lot of flux going on at the time, but Stern picked up who they thought was the best of the best. And, and I guess Dwight was considered to be one of those. So the industry was on shaky ground, but Dwight was able to find a foothold at Stern Pinball Incorporated. His early career was loaded with some of the highest pinball sellers of all time and the most complex rules ever and some of the most beloved themes. This was a great start to a legendary career. And I'm excited to get on to our next bit with Dwight Sullivan, which is when he moves into Stern. Well, he moves into Stern, and then he leaves Stern, and then he comes back to Stern. And then he goes on the upswing. As, as, as Dwight said, he, he thought this was, was quite humorous, the fact that since 1989, he's worked for the same two companies. It's either been w, you know, Williams, WMS Industries, or Stern. Yeah, Dwight Dwight is one of my favorite 
programmers. And uh, uh, like you, I enjoy the, the quote-unquote cliche moments, but I enjoy the way that he does things. Wonderful. Wonderful beginning to a start of a career. A lot of fun little interesting stories with the creation of complexity, Dwight Sullivan. Do you have anything else you want to add before we uh, zip out here? Ah, can't wait to see what he's got next. He's still going strong. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles last year. Yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of fun, I think, coming up. And uh, should we should we tell them what we're going to do on the next episode, Ron? Uh, what are we doing? You can tell me. How about we dive into Barry Ouster? So it's time for me to do the outro? Yes, please, by all means. Hold on, let me get Stewie in here. And as always, you can send your comments, questions, corrections, and concerns to SavableChronicles at gmail.com. We look forward to all your messages and we read every one. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. Turn on automatic downloads so you don't miss a single episode. And I've heard we have our own feed. Yes, if you search for Silverball Chronicles, we'll pop right up. Oh, yes, indeed. And remember to leave us a five-star review wherever you found us or on This Week in Pinball Promoted Database. That way more people can find us. Oh, hey, Steve, pitch the shirts. Shirts are super important. Oh, the shirts are super important. Look for us on SilverballSwag.com. And also, don't forget our new website, SilverballChronicles.com. And if you want to send us any emails and say how great we are, or how bad we are, either either's okay, you can send us SilverballChronicles at gmail.com. While we were at the second show selling the getaway, Larry DeMar noticed one of the large Las Vegas strip signs. Strip signs. Las Vegas. Okay, let me try that again. <laughs> Sounds like a stripper sign.